0: Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 212 for July 10th, 2008. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and, you know, festival season is upon us. So we got some great festival shows here. We've got Opa, the Greek musical. We have got Anainin' Go to Hell. I pronounced that wrong again, and you'll hear in the interview, I just... You have a mental block against getting that. We also have the Midtown Children's Musical Theater Festival along with the performance. And opening up the show, we have got uh, off-Broadway and now Broadway producer extraordinaire Ken Davenport. Uh, he, he produced Alter Boys, My First Time, and uh, Awesome 80s Prom, upcoming... Uh, Jason Robert Brown, 13, and yep, he was in the iPhone commercial. He's also going to be doing a new feature for us regularly called The Producer's Perspective, based on his blog of the same name. So, got a bunch of stuff going on, news, and a bit of everything as always. So, uh, let's kind of jump into the program. Up. Well, I'm pleased to have in our studio possibly one of the busiest producers on and off-Broadway in New York who, uh, amidst all this, somehow found the time to come down to our studios to chat about uh, not only an interview but a a brand new segment we're going to have on the podcast every episode. Ken Davenport, who is the producer of Alter Boys, Awesome 80s Prom, My First Time, uh, The Upcoming 13 by Jason Robert Brown, lots of other stuff in the middle of all this somehow keeps the time to give us a great blog at ProducersPerspective.com about all his various insights into the aspect of doing business in this crazy world of theater. (laughs) Ken, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. Now, my very first thought when I finally stumbled across your blog and started reading it is, number one, where do you find the time to write these great blogs, and two, most people would probably sell all this information you're giving away in a
3: book. <laughs> so That's a good idea. Dang it. <laughs> a year late. Uh, when do I find the time? That's uh, a very good question. Although, uh, it, you know, I started blogging almost about a year ago, and I said, you know, I'm going to give this a shot. I had an idea for something, and I, and I threw it down on paper, and I found that I enjoyed it. And it was a way for me to kind of purge a lot of the thoughts that go on in my head constantly that kind of, oh, if only, why can't we do this? So I thought it was kind of an outlet for me as well. Uh, And I remember also what it was like when I first started and uh, didn't even know I wanted to be a producer per se, but I was a production assistant and I was just starting out. And I remember wanting to learn more about it and what kind of makes our industry tick. So, and there aren't a lot of places to go for that. I mean, there is, of course, the CTI, Commercial Theater Institute. The biggest yeah, I felt CTI gives
0: a really good kind of like, you know, textbook example of what works. But what I kind of like about your website is you give kind of the the real story that doesn't often leak out.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do, you know, I have uh, about 10 years uh, as a company manager and a general manager experience under my belt from being on the inside. So I kind of learned the business from, you know, that desk where I process the payrolls and the budgets and the house seats and all that sort of thing. So, but before I got to that place and even when I was there and I had questions about producing or thoughts, really questions about why things were done a certain way, which is the big problem, I believe, in our industry. So much of it is done a certain way and we don't ever question it. We don't ever ask why or how that became that way. And... You know there is a there's a bunch of books out there, but which are fantastic kind of textbook. Uh, you know the Donald Farber books, who you know he literally wrote the book on on producing and entertainment law. But I couldn't find any kind of practical applications, that I would ask people, and uh, so I thought, you know what, I'm going to get this out. There. I'm going to start this blog as a way to get out everything that I've been thinking, as well as hopefully those all those producers out there that aren't yet producers that don't even know they want to be one to expose them to this world and hopefully get them to sign up.
0: Now, as you mentioned, I think you know I have the the theater interest industry is kind of steeped in this. So we do things this way, which is kind of odd cuz it's a creative quote unquote business and the fact that it ends up so much like Fortune 500 that are mired in, you know, obsolete or, you know, ineffective thinking matters, I guess my biggest question is, are we just stuck with those or can those
3: practices be shifted? Well, that's a great question. You know, it th- remarkably, the theater is not a very old industry or Broadway, I should say. You know, I really focus on a lot of, of Broadway, which is very different than theater in general. What works in Indiana may not work in New York City. So when what I talk a lot about uh, on the blog is, of course, marketing and all sorts of things, but also what it takes to get a show to work in this 10 to 15 block radius in the middle of Times Square, which is very different. Some people, you know, have said, oh, you're so commercial. You're so you're looking for the big kind of hits. Well, not necessarily what I tailor my blogs to are what works, again, in a specific uh, area. I wrote a blog just a couple days ago about uh, Vegas and Broadway and how it's very often. I think this actually may be your first, our first producer's perspective column. Blog,
0: <laughs>
3: but how you know there seems to be oh Spamalot's going to go there and Avenue Q going to go there and their uh, Vegas kind of buys up all these shows and it's not that easy to transplant a show from almost you know uh, from one coast almost to the other there's very specific uh, locales and what works in each one is very unique. Can it change? Absolutely. I wouldn't be here, I wouldn't be writing a blog, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't feel some of these archaic methods of doing business could change. Will it change overnight? No. It's it's like, you know, water and the tide like rushing against rocks. It's not going to, you know, wear away that shore right away, but over time if the new producers out there which are the tide if the tide keeps hitting at it and and doesn't relent slowly but surely we will see some changes which aren't about making more money that's not what any of the changes i advocate are for they're really about for doing more theater the more changes we can have the more financially viable we can create the environment then the more risks that can be taken a lot of people argue that there are no risks on Broadway. There, there are not as many new plays, although this year was a great example yeah. uh, of the opposite of that. But that's because the economic structure is so difficult. And if we can incorporate some of these changes and slowly get rid of some of these archaic business practices, then perhaps, perhaps there can be more risk and room for more product
0: one of the practices that i kind of noticed is it always puzzled me and then you did write a post kind of on the same thing which really started really hooking me into your, your podcast is i mean to your blog is the mere fact that you know in the pop world Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake would not hire the same pr person you know uh, you, you, the one they don't they don't one's going to get priority and somebody's going to get slipped to the side you know and it's too important for them to have you know competing priority and then you were also talking about like basically industry secrets and you know the mere fact that you know somebody's marking the secrets yet this business with advertising and you know I mean there's a bunch of PR agents but you know without naming names we'll say that the majority of the shows seem to cluster around two PR firms
3: that's exactly right
0: and i find that just baffling nothing against the PR firms or their
3: work no. but somebody's got to end up with the priority in it's it's a real problem, and we we have a very niche specialty industry, so it requires a very specific skill set and very specific relationships. And people will argue there isn't enough product to go around to s- support a, like ten, fifteen, twenty competitors in each specific industry. I don't know if I buy that per se, and I you know there I wrote that blog actually about the advertising agencies because there is. There are three, basically, in town, uh, major ones. Uh, And even of those three, there are two that really compete for the most of Broadway business. And the year, not this previous year, but the year before that, and this is what I wrote in the blog, all four Best Musical nominees were repped by the same advertising agency. Which boggles my mind. Would Coke and Pepsi Mm -hmm. ever hire the same ad agency? Ford and Chevrolet. I mean, this sort of thing doesn't happen. In fact, Apple, they have their own. They have their own agency dedicated just to Apple because they know, especially that company, how much they want to guard their secrets. They know they got to keep it all in uh, in one place. What? And again, the ad agencies are all fantastic at what they do. But when the same conversations about how do we market a show to win a Tony Award are happening in the same conference <laughs> room for different shows, you have to kind of wonder. And I'm not saying anyone is doing anything uh, that they shouldn't. I, I don't actually believe that the I believe the people that are running these agencies work very very hard to try and you know keep up a, a standard level playing field, but. You're absolutely right. Someone is going to get priority. If it's a new producer coming in and only has one shot and maybe, the, you know, we all know they're not going to win the Tony Award for Best Musical, they're not going to get as much attention uh, as someone that has had eight Broadway musicals mm-hmm. or ten in the pipeline, et cetera. It's just nature so now on to your kind of production career i mentioned
0: a couple of the shows as i introduced you um i'm sure i missed a couple in there um i know one recent accomplishment is altar boys finally after a long period of time yes you know ended up recouping but despite that kind of finally long period of time downside it's the first musical off broadway to recoup in
3: how long I believe it's the it's in like ten years since I Love You You're Perfect Now. Change opened. I believe we're the first musical since then to recoup. And I would argue that I Love You You're Perfect Now. Change and Ultra Boys are very different. I mean, yeah. I Love You is a review musical in a sense. It's a great show. I love it, but it's it's not a book musical. The last book musical musical to recoup. There were some rumors about Hedwig, and if any of your listeners actually know uh, if that did recoup or not, we've heard yes from some people, no from others. When the movie came out, it did. Those I'm going sort
0: of right. to guess that it's the back end stuff yeah. that got it to recoup, you know, not
3: the actual production, but that's just a pure guess. On... <laughs> no, that's, I, I believe the, the same thing, that when the movie hit, they finally tipped the scales. But, you know, of a show running off-Broadway to recoup, I don't know the last one. Is, is anything getting
0: better financially for producing Off-Broadway yet? Because I, I I think there's some nice theaters that popped up in the city. I mean, I think the New World Stages is great. I think the, the 37 Arts Center, you know, is an incredibly comfortable... Uh, 37 Arts is an incredibly comfortable experience as an audience and, and great tech. And, uh, you know, the Theater Row, you know, you know, I don't know if some people are against the idea of multiplexes, but I, I think those places have done it right in creating a comfortable facility that seems very professional in its production you don't seem nothing against the little place where you feel like you're kind of walking into a 50s you know war bomb you know shelter but image wise i'd say that some of these places have got it going on but is anything changing around the economics to actually make it more feasible for
3: a show to run and become a hit off-broadway well the difficulties that the off-broadway industry has had over the last 10 years or so, uh, I think is starting to wake a lot of people up on both sides of the table to understand that changes have to be made. I mean, there is there is a big difference between non-for-profit producing off-Broadway yeah. and, and commercial producing off-Broadway. Non-for-profit producing off-Broadway is still the same as it was, if not, you know, the New York Theatre Workshops and the Playwrights and Manhattan Theatre Club are still churning out lots of product, I think, partly as the, you know dedication to their mission statement and also in hopes that some of those plays are going to move on to Broadway uh, which so many do the you know we've seen some I believe there, there is tremendous opportunity for Off-Broadway right now because we are living in an age of the do-it-yourselfer thanks to the technical technological advances of the internet and everything an individual can do on their own from developing their own radio spots to Internet marketing to all this sort of thing, we can reduce some of the expense. What's happened over the last ten years is ten years. Broadway, I think, became uh, off Broadway became mini Broadway. We started going to a lot of the same designers that we use for Broadway. We started believing that we could support uh, an economic model that we couldn't. And I think now we have to go back to the mentality of I've got a barn. Let's put on a show. And who's going to help me here? Who's going to help me here? What can I do myself? to get this going, because based on the numbers that I see on a weekly basis on what Off-Broadway does in general, the, we have a misconception of what, what the market can actually bear, and this is something I talk about in my blog a lot. We produce a, a lot, and Broadway produces it this way as well. We produce for a big hit, that's mm-hmm. it. It's gonna be a big hit, gonna be a big hit, gonna be a big hit, and I've seen so many Off-Broadway budgets where I look at these numbers and say, there isn't this audience out there. There aren't this many people to support these kind of budgetary numbers for an extended period of time. It just doesn't happen, which is why you see, I think the statistic is 89% of all commercial off-Broadway shows close within six months. Never mind make their money back, close six months, almost 90%. That's because the economic model isn't
0: and I think recently, even six months, almost starts to look like a long run. For oh, the absolutely. It's like you hit six months and, wow, you ran. Yeah. not, not you profit.
3: You ran. Cool. You know? and, and that's a huge problem. We have to, you know, it, people get excited. You're, you know, Adding Machine is a perfect example, which got rave reviews and got uh, won awards. And they're closing prematurely. They extended. Then they were supposed to run to the end of summer. Now they're closing in the middle of July, I believe. And that uh, I'm sure they didn't come close to making their money back, which is very disappointing. They put up a great product for the community, but, uh, and I think everyone is kind of congratulations, something that was very artistic uh, ran this long. But to me, I'm a commercial theater producer. I only can put food on my table if the shows make money. So we have to figure out a model that allows for both sides of the equation, long runs in, and
0: recoup. Yeah, on buy-in, on one thing I've seen, especially, you know, just fielding and finding people who want to come in and interview and perform or whatnot, what, and and I know you found some ways around this, but I'm, I'm sure you've also butted your head up against this, is it seems that, you know equity and other unions around the things, the very thing that could possibly make, you know, off Broadway, off off Broadway, you know, code productions more Feasible there's always people complain about the cost of marketing. The internet has opened up so many ways of reaching people at a smaller level, but so many things of what they could do creatively to market and interest, I think, their audience are quite frankly just shut down or clamped on, or they're treated the same as if it's one area where it seemed in certain things like, i.e., putting video up on the internet or you know filming some things, doing some video blog, you know, interactive things to help lure in an audience are treated is either a flat out no, you can't do it, period, or on the same financial model as if they're trying to fill a 2,000 seat theater. And I'm, I'm curious, I know you have found some ways around this, I know you do some very creative marketing, but I'm also sure you butted up against some of these restrictions.
3: Um, Definitely. I do think you're... In fact, the equity uh, league negotiation, the Broadway equity league negotiation just ended like moments ago. They just announced, I just Twittered it about Mm. uh, five minutes ago, (laughs) that a deal has been made. And while the details haven't been leaked out yet, I would bet money that you're going to see a major change in how footage, the allowances for footage uh, from shows or taping or videoing, uh, those rules I think are going to change tremendously. Because as I've said to many people that work in the union, and I think they're beginning to understand it, the advent of YouTube and viral videos and what customers and the audiences want to do and what they're attracted to is so enormous that you can't even, you can't even try to stop it. Uh, you know, videos are popping up on YouTube of cast members of shows of all these sorts of things. And equity and everyone has tried to shut it down and you can't. Every time you shut something down, something else pops up, you know? It's, and at some point, there has to be a release of, okay, this is what the world, how we're operating now. This is also what they want. We have to figure something out that helps us both. You know, people have asked me, oh, there's a video up on on YouTube of your show. I was like, really? How many hits does it have? Yeah. Like, instead of, take it down, yeah. take it down. I mean, that's uh, nonsense for me. And some people say, oh, you can't tell the quality. I, The quality may not be that great, but that— Everybody knows what they're getting when they go to YouTube. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I'm not worried about the quality of it. In fact, you know, there's an argument to be made if, you know, they showed someone cracking or something that that would get more hits, you know, than than someone singing it perfectly and may actually get the word out. And that's something that's so important for Off-Broadway. We cannot afford traditional advertising methods. We can't afford ads in The New York Times, which aren't as effective as they used to be anyway— But we can't afford uh, big radio buys or television buys. We have to come up with new sorts of ways. So those sorts of uh, things are are crucial to the development of Off-Broadway. And the other thing that I I believe we need to come into our own about is Off-Broadway and the Off-Broadway theater community. uh, There is an audience out there that just wants to see Off-Broadway. I happen to know, because of some research that I do, that over 30,000 people a month Google the words Off-Broadway. That's just on Google. That's not AOL, that's not Yahoo, that's nowhere else, that's not the people that aren't Googling that are just thinking about Off-Broadway. That is a tremendous audience. I only need 10,000 people a month to sell out Alter Boys. And so there is a core group of people out there that want that experience. We just have to make that experience as attractive as possible for them, get the word out, so they don't go to Broadway first. I started a website uh, a few months ago called bestofoffbroadway.com, which is the, actually right now, it's the most comprehensive site for off-Broadway information, and only off-Broadway information. We, of course, do hotels and uh, maps and all the sort of things you would require for, to make an off-Broadway decision, but I don't have any other Broadway information. There's no—you can't get uh, where is Mamma Mia playing. There's no, there's no advertising for Broadway shows just off Broadway. We need to really be attracted to that core group. It's very long-tail thinking, if you know that mm-hmm. book. Uh, and forget about those people—because I did this on Altar Boys. I spent a lot of money and a lot of time trying to get people that were interested in Wicked and Avenue Q and Rent to come over to me. Those people will eventually come— I know they will. The show is a great one, and we've been around long enough. But it's also now about focusing just on those people who are more likely to come at the beginning, those off-Broadway theater lovers. And then everyone else will start to trickle in. It's the bottom of the marketing funnel we need to make sure we're getting first. Yeah, and and I, do you, th-
0: you think the de- the show comes out on the eighth? So you think the chance that the details will be released about that equity? I definitely, them, I, I, I do, I do think that. I hope they really because one thing besides the production angle, you know, the, and the producers being able to market, you know, I, playing the devil's advocate and, and realizing equity is trying to protect the actors. The thing I always see is actors at that stage of the game who are still in code and showcase and you know even off Broadway. They're not working for that much. They want the exposure, to get. The bigger jobs, and you know to me, it seems that if a viral video can help them hit forty thousand more potential fans than would never
3: see them even in the theater, their name starts to build a little bit more so they can get the better jobs absolutely i do I do understand equity's point and wanting to protect the actor. I just think that the ti- you know the the times are changing, and I think It's not as much protecting the actor anymore. It's actually these actors that are going home making viral videos and you know, webisodes and all sorts of things on their own just to get that. Well but I will say
0: there seems to me to be a difference between, say, for instance, wanting a producer wanting to utilize tons of Christopher Fitzgerald's time on, you know, on young Frankenstein versus you know, an off-Broadway producer trying to put up a show for $200,000 that everybody knows is going to, you know, lose money anyway in the first place, that they'll be lucky to get 100 hundred, hundred and fifty 150 bucks in the theater every night for him to ask the actor if he's willing to do some extra things. Uh, there's just a huge, huge difference. Huge. That's a, that's a huge difference, and that's where I hope that they've seen, that there is a difference between asking the big stars that are busy and are doing a lot of stuff and do have their agents and the careers and are getting the things, versus... The actors who are doing these shows
3: trying to climb up the ladder. Yeah, and more often than not, these actors are willing to do this Mm -hmm. sort of thing, I find. You know, Cubby Bernstein, you know, (laughs) look at all the people you saw on that. Uh, So, yeah, I I think you will see some changes, and there has to be, because it is a new form of marketing, and, and it's a very essential one, especially for the smaller shows, and we've done some stuff. We did a backstage video of Alter Boys that was fantastic for us. I mean, this is what people wanna see. They wanna see the insider stuff. They wanna see the actors away from the shows a little bit uh, in podcasts like this, and they wanna to get to know them. And that's, that's what this new form of marketing is all about. So kind of before we wrap up, I know you got a couple
0: things on the, on the table for this fall and coming, anything you wanna talk about briefly
3: here? And I am sure uh, one of the producers on 13, which is uh, opening this this fall. The official announcement hasn't even been made at this point yet. But uh, I'm very excited about this show. It's going to be fantastic, and you know, with the score by Jason Robert Brown, who uh, is is an incredible writer. And I actually know from way back. I went to NYU. My first class at NYU was a singing uh, singing class at the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute. Mm -hmm. I sang "Why God Why" from Miss Saigon, (laughs) and I turned to my left to hand the music to the accompanist, and uh, it was Jason Robert Brown, who um, coached me for a while back then. This was 1991 a long time ago. So I know Jason from a, uh, from a long time, so I'm, I'm thrilled to be on the show uh, with him. So I've got that going on, which is exciting. I'm also... Uh, I've been developing a, another website called broadwayspace.com, which is a social networking site. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's MySpace, but for people who love Broadway. And that has really taken off. Uh, and it's a lot of fun. And another... I mean, you sense a little bit of a trend here. I, I was one of these kids that that loved musical theater and loved Broadway and I used to listen to Les Mis while driving the 30 miles to school and then when I pulled into the parking lot I used to switch it to like MC Hammer you know because I didn't want anyone to hear that I was mm-hmm. listening to Les Mis because uh, no one else did in my school and I was thinking last year about what it would be like if I had given, given the chance to connect online to people that loved Les Mis or Broadway as much as I did and we live in that world now we didn't in the early in late 80s uh, so, I developed this site, Broadway Space, to do that, to connect people all over the world, just like you've done with this podcast, to give them an opportunity to get connected to what's happening here and meet other people. And those are the sort of things that I believe help the brand of everybody. If we can cultivate and gather all the passionate theater goers and Broadway lovers in one place, that's, what's gonna, that's audience development. I actually hate those words. I hear this all the time. I go to breakout sessions at conferences. Who wants to deal with audience development? And I run the other direction because it <laughs> bores me to tears. But audience development is is about providing people with a fun, exciting experience that they don't even realize is growing their love for what we do. And that's what Broadway space is all about. And that's what that's what I believe, you know, Uh, shows are all about it's it's about content it's about giving people content to get excited about and so that they see show after show so Broadway's around for years and years and years and we can incorporate some of those changes that I want to do on kind of a final a little more silly note
0: uh the iPhone commercial that you were in that ran <laughs> everywhere for several months, how did, how did that have any effect on your shows or you as a producer? Just mm-hmm. any?
3: Absolutely. The, <laughs> that iPhone commercial was one of the luckiest things that has ever happened to me. And it, it's exactly what it looks like. You know, it's so many people that go, <laughs> I've actually been, you know, I've got a little bit of a reputation for being kind of uh, a Broadway or off-Broadway stuntman about doing these kind of guerrilla taxic- tactics. So I got a lot of people going, Ken, How did you do it? That is amazing. You got on an iPhone commercial. Did you call Steve Jobs? What did you do? And as much as I'd love to say, yes, that was me, like, working the phones, and it's not at all. It's exactly what it looks like. I love my phone. They were looking for people who love their phone, and, like, soulmates, we found each other. And I've also told people when they ask that same question, like, you know, did it help? Uh, You know, I was an off-Broadway show. Uh, My first time, because it ended up being about my first time, and even, you know, me as a producer in the blog. Uh, And I told people that I would have taken a commercial for, you know, the Chicken Shack in, like, (laughs) East Hoboken or something on public access TV, never mind a commercial for arguably one of the best technological advancements of the 21st century by one of the leading companies in the world that ran on Gossip Girl, Monday Night Football, everywhere. So it had a tremendous effect uh, on the show. And awareness. I mean, things that my first time, which the commercial talked about, can't afford that kind of brand awareness. Off-Broadway usually can't afford those types of branding campaigns. And that really branded the show. Uh, and it was fantastic. <laughs> the new one comes out soon. I'm, I'm hoping for another call. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, well,
0: Ken Davenport, com is your blog, and despite what you said about being New York-centric, I find it, I, I think that almost anybody who's interested in producing theater, even acting to learn kind of what's about the business, may be very Broadway-centric, but I kind of the biggest theme I see is to try to open your eyes and look at new ways of doing things, and and that, and I think it can help out, you know, somebody running a community theater in, you know, Omaha
3: as much as... You know. You're right, actually. I've gotten great emails and feedback from people all over the, the country, you know, saying, hey, I'm trying this, I'm trying this. And my response is always, good for you for just trying it. Some things work, some things don't. But the point is uh, to get out there and try do new things. And a bunch of people have responded that things that they're incorporating that... Some they may have learned from the blog. Others they may have just gotten, oh, you know what? That made me think about trying to do this instead. Uh, is working for a lot of people, which is really what it's all about. All right. Well, look forward to hearing your thoughts on the program every uh,
0: episode in a new regular column. Been kind of looking for something else kind of regular to go along with this. So thanks for stopping by the studio and best of luck with everything. My pleasure. <laughs> The call board. Jamie McGonigal and Joe's Pub present Broadway Loves the 80s Volume 3, a concert featuring your favorite Broadway stars singing their favorite hits of the awesomest decade ever. Directed by McGonigal and Xanadu's Marty Thomas with music direction by Ben Cohn, Broadway Loves the 80s will take place on Sunday, August 10th at 9.30 p.m. at Joe's Pub. The host of the past two concerts, Mo Rocca, will return for this third incarnation. Currently scheduled to shake your love on August 10th are Jen Colella, Nikki Renee Daniels, Eden Espinosa, Anthony Rapp, Kate Schindel, Marty Thomas, and Ugly Bettys, Michael Urie. Then, the Manhattan Theatre Club is pleased to announce that three-time Tony Award nominee and two-time Drama Desk Award winner Brian Murray will join the cast of its upcoming world premiere Broadway production of Nick Whitby's To Be or Not to Be, based on the 1942 motion picture To Be or Not to Be. Hmm. The production, to be directed by three time Tony Award nominee Casey Nicola, will mark Whitby's New York playwriting debut. In other casting news, the producers of Spring Awakening announce Weed star Hunter Parrish will join Broadway's groundbreaking musical hit in the central role of Melchior, the brilliant young radical, on August 18th. Hunter can currently be seen as Silas, the rabble rousing older son of Mary Louise Parker, on the highly acclaimed Showtime series Weeds. Yeah, and. Describing as a rabble rouser—that's fun. And finally, the Mark Taper Forum will reopen September 13th and hold a gala celebration hosted by Dame Edna. Dame Edna will cover red carpet arrivals, which will be followed by cocktails, dinner, a preview performance of John Guar's *The House of Blue Leaves*, and the taper. The taper has been closed since August, while a 30 million interior renovation is taking place. Changes have been made to the theater's lighting, electrical, air handling. And sound systems. Among them are the replacing of seats and carpeting, and the lobby is doubled in size, and the restrooms relocated. Tickets to the gala only cost $1,500. For more information, please visit www.centertheatergroup.org. And the call board is being sponsored by Roy Aria Studios, located at 43rd and 8th, in the same building as us, in the heart of the theater district. They've got tons of great rehearsal spaces, performance venues at a great price, and they've got a staff who has been involved in all aspects of production and truly knows how to help out... However, you might need it. The spaces are equity approved and they're easily accessible by Port Authority, Penn Station, and all subways. Feel free to give them a call at 212 957 8358 or send an email to bookings at Roy Arias Studios for any inquiry or to view the spaces. On the boards. Opa! If you saw the My Big Fat Greek Wedding, I think that's drilled that particular exclamation into the minds of many people in the United States, and there is, well, I'm guessing a Greek-themed musical taking place at the Midtown International Theater Festival, starting on the 19th of July, called OPA, and uh, we've got two of the writers here with us in the studio, we're also going to hear a couple songs from their demo, Uh, Mari Karras and Laurel Alstein. How are you doing?
4: Hi. Very good. You want to introduce yourselves
0: really quickly and uh, say what you do with the show so people can connect the voice with the name?
4: I'm Mari Karras, one of the
5: creators of the show. I've also worked on the book and lyrics. And I'm Laurel Olstein, and I'm a co-writer of the book.
0: All right. So let's get the the, the big question out of the way first. And What is OPA? What's the show? What's it about? (laughs)
5: <laughs> okay. Well, the show is a celebratory look at be- people on a, a small Greek island that has been left off the map. It's present day, but it, it's timeless, really, because being on a small Greek island left off the map, they don't have a lot of influences from the outside world. And it's really about these wonderful, quirky uh, people and their relationships with each other and the whole metaphor of being left off the map and what that means some of them enjoy being left off the map in, in their own worlds, and some think that they want more out of life, and it's what they find out from each other and um, what happens to these people when, when they get discovered.
0: So uh, what, what was your thought process? How did the show come into being? What made you want to start writing this or germinating the ideas?
4: Well, the real story is that I went to Greece for a three-month trip that turned into five years while I was there, I had a lot of time to observe my fellow countrymen. And I said, someone should do a musical about these people. And I started just writing about these characters. So this musical really came out of the characters.
0: So how does three months turn into five years?
4: Oh, that's a whole different show, my friend. (laughs) might be another play. (laughs) It was a good run while it lasted. It didn't end too long ago, actually. But... um, And my father, who's a film and TV composer, Nicholas Karras, um, we started doing a father-daughter project together, so I had the good fortune of working with him on it. Unfortunately, my father passed away last year, so um, I have a lot of his songs represented in here, but we do have another fabulous composer named Nick Katsopoulos who is coming in and putting in his own music and his own touch, and, and that's great.
0: Yeah. Now, does does Nick's family wonder which Nick is the composer? Because there's probably, like, 25 Nick's There's a
5: lot of Nicks in Greece, (laughs) I've noticed. There seems to be five names. I don't know what that is, but we're using them all in the play. That's right.
0: (laughs) Well, before we continue, how about we play uh, the first song from the demo that we're going to play on this, um, the title track, Opa. Is is there anything that needs to be set up with this song?
4: Not really. I think the lyrics sort of speak for themselves. Opa is... You know, living your life out there. It's an exclamation of happiness and joy, and that's what this song is, and that's what the moment in the play is about that, too.
0: All right, well, let's take a listen. Opa, it
6: means get out there and get
2: going. Follow your heart.
0: show is going on, starting on uh, July nineteenth, Midtown International Theater Festival. Uh, what has been your experience so far with getting getting a musical together and ready for a festival? <laughs> well, that's
5: always very interesting because you're you have limited resources, really, but you're putting up a whole big show. Mm-hmm. So you want it to be opening night, and you're you know your budgets are what your budgets are in a, in a festival. But everybody is pulling together and doing, and we have an incredible cast. Who's so committed, and everybody who's working on it is so committed. All the all the designers and everybody's running around getting, you know, getting the set together and getting the costumes, and it's just doing great. And the rehearsals are fabulous. We have a wonderful choreographer, and we've never seen it up on its feet. We've had readings only of the of the play before with the music. We've had, um, so this is just fabulous to watch. the our our characters come to life and sing and dance together. It's. Um, It was sort of teary-eyed when we saw the first choreography. It was like, my God, there it is. And the
4: truth is we use these processes to work on the piece ourselves. We've had two readings and those went well and some things didn't. And we're going into this, it's a little bit risky developing this in New York, sort of in front of everybody. And we've not seen the choreography
5: before. We've put some new songs in there. And we've done quite a rewrite, too. So between every reading, we've... Isn't that every, every show? Every reading. show. <laughs> well, we're still... We did a little yeah. rewrite last night that we just put in today. I mean, it's mm. that's what this process is definitely for. So for us, it's a little bit crazy because we take advantage of every
4: single moment to make the piece better because it's such an enormous effort, as I'm
5: sure you know, to put yeah. together a musical. So we don't like to... You know, right, to get all these that. wonderful, talented people all together to be able to have the composer there and and all of us to have a conversation—if like a moment doesn't work—that we can all do something about it and then see it the next day is just—and let's not forget that
4: when we started, I was living in Greece, as That's I said. Right. Laurel's living in LA, and we were writing <laughs> online between us. We would have a scene. We would we would have conversations and because of the time difference it would actually work out by the time she woke up she would have my notes and then I could pick them up <laughs> when I work so we're used to working separately no problem my father was in LA and right. we can
5: write anywhere we found that we write well in subways oh, and yeah. cafes mm-hmm. and good scene we did see, in that we subway. did a great scene in that subway yeah it's always it's. we've had a great time writing I and mean, we just laugh and we know for sure when we laugh hysterically that's a moment that will work <laughs> we've never been wrong <laughs> All right, so
0: let's take another listen to another song from uh, your your demo recording the thing by the way um was is this demo with the cast members that are performing, or is there or is this separate these other actors? Just this just... is an
4: early recording demo that was just with piano. It doesn't really represent the full Greek sound, just more or less the raw material of the song, but those songs are still in there different my differently
0: yeah. mostly. All right. So the next song is "He's Got the Evil Eye." Any uh, setup needed for this?
4: <laughs> well, this is a big gossip scene. All the little widows are running around telling the story on how you know someone from the past is coming back to claim his wife and all this. And our hero Costa is um, you know head in hands. And so in Greece we say, "Oh, he must have the evil eye." You know, he's under this curse. And that's what the song is about. They're telling the story of what's about to happen. All
0: right, let's take a listen.
2: Aha, uh-huh, an aching head.
0: Cooked
4: with
2: too much wine. His eyes are very red. A most suspicious sign. Lord, what would Vula say? Aye, oh, that poor old guy. purple po po to he has the evil eye. What underneath What do you love say? Too plain to deny
1: po 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 he has got the evil eye mm-hmm. There
2: must there be something hidden <sighs> Some secret reason why po 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 i
0: All right, so this is a comedy,
5: yes, and and,
0: and I think and, and it's clearly about a culture. I think a lot of times when you know with these kind of cultural you know theme things, people always like finding the quirks and the differences and the in the personalities and the things that make us so alike and but that are distinctive oh, yeah. and different. And as a comedy, I'm going to guess you focus on a lot of the things. So I'm kind of curious within the Greek culture whether it's whether it's in the show or whether it's not. Maybe some of the more humorous, distinctive quirks that you seem to have, you know discovered and enlightened in in the show and in your own experience?
5: Well, the funny (laughs) thing is that... I'm I'm not Greek. I'm I'm Jewish, and I'm the, the Jewish <laughs> part of the team here. We actually uh, uh, jokingly call it OIPA every <laughs> once in a while. Um, and when I when we first were talking, when Mari and I were first talking about uh, working together, and I I was really um, uh, attracted to the whole concept and loved it, and we we got along so well together, but. I didn't I was worried that i did, wasn't Greek enough to or couldn't you know didn't know enough about the Greek people, but it turns out the Jewish people are very similar to the Greek <laughs> people and I think many ethnic families I probably just every family comes down to the same you know your crazy uncle your grandmother who can't you know it doesn't like this person it doesn't like does like this person it can't cook but makes you eat you know whatever there's there's so many great types in every culture and i think when you get down to the really specifics about a character it sort of is universal the more specific it is the more universal it is
0: yeah i think a lot exactly i think a lot of writers sometimes miss that or you know do things the fact that you can it is like the more specific, the more we relate. When it gets vague, then it looks. Right.
5: But we did take definitely from Mari's family thing and and people that you know. I mean, we talked a lot about, about the Greek people.
4: Yeah, and I mean, I take license to poke fun a little bit. I mean, our opening number is called To Complain. So, I mean, that sets up the tone of the
5: piece pretty accurately. Yeah. <laughs> and see, <say, laughs> it could be to it could be anybody. <laughs> mm.
0: So, Mari, are there any specific people in this play from your, your, your five-year sojourn over there that, that know or don't know that they're... Accurate? No, no. <laughs> I use
4: names very sort serp- of... Serp- t- but there are like only that. five. <laughs> I <know>. so... <laughs> <laughs> there are only five names in Greece, so, right. Right. so it's all masked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I... I take advantage of some of the specific character types, you know, living in a small village anywhere, but, you know, in Greece, the gossip, the fact that everybody thinks they have a secret, but everybody actually knows the story, but they pretend that they don't,
5: and... That's the thing, that living on a small island, it's a small town. It's it's like, everybody knows everybody's business. And that's true in any kind of small community. And it's just sort of amplified, because you can't even, you can't escape at all, except by boat.
0: So, <laughs> all right. Well, OPA is the uh, 19th through the 6th of August, and it's you've got a website opathemusical.com mm-hmm. so the people can check out more. Uh, Mari Kars and Laurel Olstein, I thank you so much for coming on. We're going to roll out the interview with one last song from the show. Uh, this is, but that's enough about me. Uh, Close us off. Anything you want to set up about this song?
5: Well, this is a really fun song um, about one the character Manos, who is sort of uh, sort of the antagonist a, a bit for part of the play, anyway. And he comes back from America to his little island where he grew up, and he's like the big guy who's got a lot of gold chains, you know, and he's he's sort of showing off with all his. All the things he brought back from America, but he doesn't want to talk about it. That's <laughs> enough about me. So that's, that's what it's, it's about, Manos. Is-
0: All right, well, thank you for joining me today, and wish you the best of luck in your run, and hopefully we can get a chance to check that out, com. and here's But That's Enough About Me. I left this land, I must admit, with nothing but my
6: native wit. A dream, a lion's heart, to see it through. Like Odysseus, I stood tall, faced my monsters, slew them all. Like any good Greek would do. But that's enough about me. I am still the simple country boy, you see. Sure, my dream worked out, but no need to shout. That's enough about me. When first I reached America, I looked around and quickly saw To make a buck, you had to stand in line So I'd get there early, get my ticket Secret is, then I'd find some poor slob too late to get his And for five bucks, sell him mine Five bucks for an hour's work, not bad money (laughs) But that's enough about me I am still the simple country boy you see Sure my dream worked out But no need to shout That's enough about me By American philosophy They judge the worth of your idea By the clothes you wear By how you speak Why am I such a successful businessman? Because I can walk and talk like an American. But I still think in Greek. But that's enough about me. I am still the simple country boy you see. Sure, my dream worked out, but no need to shout. That's enough about me. That's enough about me. I am still the simple country boy you see. Sure, my dream worked out. But no need to shout. That's enough about
0: me. On the Boards. All right, given the crazy nature of this business, the two people I'm interviewing uh, I've worked with before, <laughs> uh, but I've only met uh, the director, Christina Alisea, once, briefly, while she was busy in tech rehearsals, and David Stallings, just a little bit of communication over the phone, but uh such just the way of the theater as I wrote a song <laughs> for the last show that they worked together on, uh, which is Arpeggio. Playwright David Stallings and director Christina Alisea, are on a new show for The Fringe, Anais Nin Goes to Hell. Is that correct? It's Anais-nin. close. Very Anais Very close.
7: <laughs>
0: <laughs> the dark comedy. How are you guys doing? Great. Doing well. It's always weird meeting in situations like this. I mean, because I met you, Christina, but you were you were like in tech rehearsals.
7: Yeah, so. I was crazy and, you know, as usual with me in tech, I was just running around. I probably nodded at you for a second. I was like, great, thanks for writing the song, Michael. I'll see you later. <laughs> And that was yeah, running around like crazy.
0: Well, so tell us a little bit about your new show, Anna Eastin Goes to Hell. I may probably think Anna Eastin
8: Goes to Hell. (laughs) (laughs) We'll
0: get it
7: right.
8: (laughs) Anna with an E. She's it's it's a fun dark comedy that takes place in Hades, and uh, it was the winner of um, Boston Theater Works Unbound Festival. In two thousand and seven, and it uh, just we just found out yesterday.
7: Currently, it's, it's a semifinalist. It was
8: the semifinalist this year for the Princess Grace Awards. So, was that voted on by the public? Uh, no, Polonians, no. There's like know. a special little committee that. That heads up all of that. A the
0: popular play that wasn't quite as good, but appealed to the American people. Or, or calls.
8: <laughs> <laughs> so this this is a really dark play that I've been, it, it, but yet extremely funny that I've been trying to work on probably for had the idea five years ago, and it's just been kind of brewing. And we've had this play written for a couple years, and just finally.
7: Yeah, David and I uh, work a lot together on on most of his plays. He allows me to help him, give him some critique <laughs> and and whatnot. And I remember we've He's been grimacing working either. on... I don't
0: think he likes the critique. <laughs> he
7: was like, okay. <laughs> only from he, her. I don't usually listen from to me. other people. But
0: Christina, uh, I Feedback to.
7: probably is a, is a more appropriate <laughs> word, I would say. And um and we were working on a play of his uh, called Falia um a few years ago. And he had just started brewing this idea of N.I.E. Goes to Hell, and we'd been talking about and he started a little rough draft. So it's really interesting now, a few years later, how it's developed and now we're actually doing it in the Fringe mm-hmm. uh, at Fringe NYC Festival. So it's it's been like a long journey to get here and I think it's exciting.
0: So how many shows have you done? Because I know then this is at least three that you're on right now.
7: Um, with David? Yeah. Yeah, this is the third. Um, this is the third that we've that that
8: collaborated I've,
0: together
7: yeah, for. Yeah, we work really well together. <laughs> Um. Even, we fight a lot, but it's always good. It's the good fight, right? <laughs>
8: if, if there's no fighting between a writer and a director, usually the play's gonna be boring.
7: So <laughs> yeah. So it seems to usually work out really well. So we, you know, we keep working together. Um. So yeah, this is kind of like a well-oiled machine. He, he and I working together yeah. at this point. We
8: don't even speak anymore.
7: <laughs> it's actually pretty true. We don't.
8: It's a Jedi.
7: <laughs> it's a Jedi mind trick. I give him like a little <laughs> weird eye gesture, and he goes, "Oh yes." <laughs>
0: So what are kind of your individual backgrounds in the theater, and how how did you come to be uh, writing and directing here in New York?
7: Hmm. Um, Well, I moved here about seven years ago, and uh, initially I was actually an actor, and I I started working with a a theater company in the city and and just started playing around um, with directing um, while I was exploring acting as well, and then I, I... soon came to realize that directing was actually my passion and um, and just focused all of my attention on that and and pretty much um, have been um, teaching myself through working, you know, like honing exactly my craft as a director. And that's what I've been doing the last, you know, however many years. And then David and I met, um, and he gave me that first play, Faliat, to Read, and we just started talking about it. And he realized through just, just conversation that I might be a, a someone a well-suited uh, collaborator for him
8: yeah. uh, I was uh, college uh, as an actor as well and uh, was a closet writer and I would write <laughs> all the time and never let anyone read it because I was extremely shy writing is very personal. Acting can be very vulnerable and personal too, but writing, it's all coming from you. But if you act you. and don't let anybody see, it's a little odd. <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> the thing with acting is you can always
8: say, I didn't write the characters, so that's really not what I'm, but I wrote all the characters, so everything that's happening to them, I came up with, so that's a little vulnerable. And, uh, and, and so when I came out here, I was acting, and I really realized Many of the projects I, I was working on, I wasn't inspired on as an artist. I was really working, but I wasn't pleased with the work. It just wasn't what I wanted to be doing, so uh, I quickly started writing and it just came out. I finally, I finally let people read my work, so that was nice. And this particular play came from uh, ideas from college, from philosophy courses I took there, which uh, were, I'll never forget it, a philosophy teacher, a man, said in class, Uh, Women will never make good philosophers because they pay too much attention to detail. And I was mm. so offended. I was, and I'm not a woman, but <laughs> oh, I was just oh, Just to clarify. <laughs> just so that just, that <laughs> just not, to clarify. But, well, you know, in <laughs> Boston, it was funny. When it won that award, I went over there, and the literary manager was like, it was a blind breed. And she was like, I thought that we were going to give it to a woman this year. I, we thought that a woman had written this play. And then we, we looked once we had chosen the winner, and, oh, a, a man wrote this?
0: That's you terrific. know, actually, David? I had a friend who had a reverse situation. Her name was Bryce. Oh. And she, it was a woman's thing, and she no. won I go! Oh, we actually thought we were giving it to a guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
7: Well, David, all his in all of his plays, a reoccurring thing I think is is that he writes incredibly strong, you know, uh, women, like very uh, three dimensional women. I think you know, which I find might be a harder perspective for a man to take, obviously. So. Um,
8: what I did with this play was I, I was like, fine, you know. Mr. Philosophy Chauvinist, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna find all of these wonderful women through history, and uh, I'm gonna who who were very important and who did have philosophy, and I'm going to bring them. To this island in hell, and because um, that's where they belong, those <laughs> women philosophers. Well, the, 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 <laughs> <laughs> yes, all women philosophers belong in hell. But no, uh, it, it was just—it's—it's—it's it's become just such a great project, and it took on a life of its own. And all of these women are waiting for men, and that's what they do in hell—is they wait for men until. Uh, um, Annaeus Nin. Wait, who, is this Sex in the City? We just saw that. Oh, uh, no, there's 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 no Moloblonics in this movie. Uh,
7: well, Cleopatra, Cleopatra, maybe, might have gotten hands on some.
8: Uh, Queen Victoria, definitely not. Um, and so, uh, these women are waiting for men, and then this erotica writer, and she's uh, Annaeus Nin, the first female erotica writer, shows up and tries to. Is there her a own big
0: claim on that? Is there like a lot of people claiming that they were the first female... I don't think so.
8: Everyone was pretty, you know, set on... It was her, okay, because, you know, in the 30s, no one wanted that response. Actually, all she did was she wrote dirty stories for an old man, and he paid her a dollar a page to write these dirty stories, and then she finally compiled them, and it was first offered to Henry Miller, and he turned it down, and so she she took the money to support Henry, and then she... um, was like well i'm going to compile these into a a little book called the delta of venus among others so she was she's a saucy lady with a rich past and really inspiring when you you can listen to her actually on youtube you can type in Anaïs, and, and, and there she is. And she'll say, my name is Anna with an because everyone mispronounces it.
7: And it's interesting because all of the other historical figures that are in the play, none of them were around during the time that feminism evolved. Mm-hmm. So Anaïs is the only character that comes from that period. So she really does bring her feminist perspective to these women, um, which is what is so interesting about the play.
8: Yeah, to women like Joan of Arc and Queen Victoria. And my favorite is Heloise. Which very few people is it? Know. Hints from. <laughs> it, it, what?
0: <laughs> she was. She hints was a, from Heloise.
7: <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. What's
8: the pronunciation on Heloise? Heloise. <laughs> Hel- Everyone knows how to say Heloise, right? You no, know, she. She's a nun from the twelfth century. Her lover got castrated. It's kind of famous story. So. That, that's a fun one for me too she I'm confused too. she gave household hints <laughs> <laughs> then, she, uh, nun- she, she wrote dirty <laughs> prayers I think is what it was
0: <laughs> <laughs> so um, now also both of you are heavily involved with or uh, and I, I think you
8: started MT works
0: yeah we're the founding
8: um, me- we're two of the founding members of MT works therefore
0: so um, I'm kind of curious the, the the choice right I know you put on a lot of stuff with MT works and um, what was your decision to go with the fringe for this show versus your own company or is it, is it still it's still empty works at the fringe i i know can...
8: it's still empty where empty works is the company that okay. that submitted to the fringe okay so that's that's what we're doing empty works at at the fringe and this just seems like a, a fringe show like you know we wanted also to get there there's so many interesting young theater goers who go to the fringe so i really wanted to to have this show exposed to them because this seemed I've seen so many plays at the Fringe that were young and edgy and fun and I thought this would fit right in.
7: Yeah, I think the Fringe tries to embody kind of um, um, an avant-garde take. You know, they try to really get a broad spectrum of plays that they have involved um, in their festival and I think Anaïs Nin, more than other plays that we may choose for our seasons as M.T. Works, um, fits within kind of the mold of what they're looking for. Um, and we really wanted to reach out to an audience base that we haven't really um, been able to get yet. Um, just as a company, um, a, a new company going into our third season, we haven't really had, um, you know, as much exposure as we would like. Um, and I think that um, and the NYC Fringe Festival is is one of you know is a good forum for us to try to utilize that.
0: Have you done something with Fringe before? With MT Works?
7: I, I worked actually... Not with MT Works. Yeah. Not with MT Works. I worked as a venue director for them, actually. So I was on the other side of, of that whole thing last year. So it did give me kind of a good perspective of how they function as a you know production company and festival. So.
0: Now, besides the obvious tech restrictions, what are the biggest differences in uh, in getting to a show ready for uh, the Fringe versus one of your own productions where you set the date? Are there any real significant differences and
7: I know for me as a director I definitely have to keep in mind the limitations of fringe in terms of coming up with a concept for the show. It has to be bare bones and yet still, you know, creating a significant world, you know that you enter into that you set up in the 15 minutes that you have to set up your stage and your your set space as you I have to articulate a, some kind of concept that the designers, you know, can manifest that's going to be really interesting and yet also um simple to put together so that always has to be kept in the forefront is is okay what kind of set and what kind of lighting (laughs) and what kind of stuff can we do (laughs) for this festival that's going to look great but it's it's also going to be really easy to just put out there and then take off
0: Now, I know, you know, when you're working with the actors in the union and stuff, are there different, like, union restrictions on rehearsal times versus the festival for your own thing? Are those pretty much the same?
7: Um, that's more of a producer question. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's
8: actually, it's, 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 what it is, is it's, it's still a, a, what equity showcase contract yeah. so it's it's the same thing as that it's it's a little different slightly different but that has to do with the size of houses and that kind of thing but basically it's the same as any other and
7: yeah I mean we do have a tech rest, like we only have twice the amount of time as the length of the show to actually tech which is just four hours to tech the show which is crazy and you know part of the thrill of being a part of fringe is you just go in there and you go okay go (laughs) and you quickly just like throw it all together and you hope that the tech is going to turn out okay so um that's part of the the excitement and fun of it
0: so the the thing is you should tell people you have a three-hour show
7: <laughs> That's actually No good. one wants to
0: produce a three-hour <laughs> show <laughs> unless it was written by Terry We were Letts. we were lucky enough to do a full length of French. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so any more interesting facts about some of the the characters of Ana Nin goes you know, Ana
8: Eastnit. Well, I'm um, just Ana Ana um, an, <laughs> an East. It's just Anna with it's just a it's, it's, a, it's, just a, it's a, there's also a character Andromeda who is a, a Greek princess and uh, her, her name means to wait for men. And so I, I really find that uh, just really great for me that I picked that character from history. But there's also a man in the play. Well, are you saying that was just like pure chance? It was pure chance. <laughs> I, I chose the myth first, and I already had all of the structure of the play, and I was like, well, I need this character, and I, I chose her. And then in my research, I was like, oh, look at that. Well, isn't that clever? You know, I, <laughs> you know,
0: I know as a writer, doesn't that just make you feel like, yes, this play
8: was meant to be when things it like that me- just pop you know, there in. There are like... happy accidents <laughs> and, and and later on people will say well look at that look what Michael did oh my goodness all that symbolism it was lucky. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <Yeah>.
8: <laughs> David got lucky. But no um, there is a man that comes to the island at the end of the first act and then you meet him in act two and that's a fun little mystery because I'm not telling anyone what man from history I've chosen. And uh, Yeah,
7: but here are these six, like, intense, intense women intense that are women. waiting for this man to arrive and he comes and, you know, all this stuff happens afterwards. It's a lot of fun. Um, yeah, we've got a great cast. Um, the cast
8: is fantastic, actually, really stunning.
7: Um, Actually, I was a little nervous about working with with the the cast to begin with because here are all these, you know, very strong women that we have. And then, um, you know, the only way to really cast it well is to also cast strong women to play these parts so I literally have six very very strong minded you know (laughs) intense women (laughs) that I have to direct and tell them what to do and they all have their own ideas of exactly what it is that they want their character to be like and so you know juggling that is is is. Is you know a challenge, but they're all really great girls. Actually, they're really nice. We should talk
8: about we should talk about Marnie. Marnie's fantastic. Um, yeah,
7: actually, the person that is playing Andromeda is uh, Marnie Schullenberg who um, is uh, on a, a soap currently. She's
8: on As the World Turns as Allison Stewart, and. Um, oh, you're just star fuckers. Oh, <laughs> she's no, a fantastic she's
7: actually actress. perfect for this part. And she's so she's wonderful. so
8: wonderful. She's wonderful. And then uh, who else? Um,
7: and we also have Allie Worth, who's actually one of our company actors. We have a couple of company actors. Ally's a longtime production.
8: friend of mine. Allie Ally, we we love working with. She was in our our last production for MT Works, Providence, yeah. and which and by the way I, I said was amazing. That Thank production you. was absolutely amazing. And Ali's coming back to play my wicked nun. And um, Madeline McKay is uh, some someone I think a lot of New York theater goers have seen off off Broadway for a while now, and she's a great actress playing Queen Victoria. Um, we have uh, an actress playing Anna East is Shelly Feldman, and she was actually she's from Israel. She was an Israeli soldier, so talk about a strong woman. She can shoot a gun.
7: And, <laughs> no uh, M16. An actually. M16.
8: She's she always tells us that. And uh, American she, soldiers can shoot, you know, cannons.
7: <laughs> <laughs> All right, don't get jealous now.
3: <laughs> but
7: yeah, talk about strong women. We have her as our lead, Anna Eastman. Hmm. Um and then we have Maggie Benedict, and of course the man who is uh, Carl Holder. Yes. Um, the mysterious man. So. Yeah. Um, We're lucky to have, oh, and Colleen, Colleen Piquette. Little
8: Colleen, she's
0: great.
7: Who's playing uh, Joan of Arc.
8: All right, so so now where and when is the show playing for the Fringe? Well, we found out that we're going to be at the Connolly Theater, and uh, that's on East 4th between A and B. It's venue 17, and it's 220 East 4th between avenues A and B. We
0: we'll go. we'll have this on our, our website
8: yeah. and we're also playing on uh Friday August the 8th 9:45 Sunday August 10th 9:30 Sunday August 17th 7:15 Thursday August 21st 5:15 and Sunday August 24th at 2:45 so those are, Do
0: you those.
7: want me to repeat that so we
8: can like? We'll get, have it on it our web. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, they'll we'll, have it on the website. But <laughs> well, basically, the eighth
0: through the thirteenth,
8: twenty-fourth. Oh, the twenty-fourth. Yeah, okay. yeah, of August. It's gonna be nice and spread out, so you have plenty of time to to choose your date.
0: All right. So it's Anais, Nin goes to hell very so close same. Anna, Anna yes. East Anna East Anna, Anna East. with an East. yeah I <laughs> oh, just uh, slow and uh, <laughs> I, I thank you so much Christina Alisea Thank you go. Go. and David Staling Davide Stalingas
8: <laughs> Actually, no, David Stalingas <laughs>
7: <laughs> yeah <I know. laughs>
0: thanks so much for coming down and chatting wish you the best of luck as you get ready for the Fringe and I look forward to seeing the show excellent okay. thank, thank you,
3: you.
0: thanks The producer's perspective.
3: Hey guys, Ken Davenport here from theproducersperspective.com. Thanks for listening and special thanks to Michael and everyone here at Broadway Bullet for having me on board. I'm a huge fan of this podcast, so when I got the call, I jumped at the opportunity. So thanks, guys. And to all of you, I promise we're going to talk about some really fun stuff, so stay tuned. But for my very first podcast with you, I thought I'd answer one of the questions that I get most often, whether that be on a panel, or from people on the street, or even from some of the actors in my shows. Everyone wants to know what the heck it is I actually do. What is the job of a producer? Well, the truth is, the answer to that question varies depending on who that producer actually is. Some producers are great deal-makers. They can put people in a room that don't belong in the same room together and somehow get them to play nice. Some are great money raisers, some are great marketers or advertisers. So the answer I always had for those people on the panels or on the street or even those actors of mine was that a producer's job varies from producer to producer. Well, a little while ago I realized that answer was probably the biggest cop-out I could come up with, so I set out to find a much simpler definition. Here's what I've come up with. A commercial producer's job is to get as many people to see his or her show as possible. It's that simple. Now, this task can be accomplished through raising money to get the show up, through giving notes to the authors in order to make it a better show, through marketing and advertising, you name it. There are many different ways to accomplish this goal, but the goal remains the same. Your job is to get as many people as possible to see that show. Why? Two reasons. If lots and lots and lots of people see it, the investors will be happy because hopefully they're making money. And if lots and lots and lots of people are seeing it, your authors should be happy because that means their voice is being heard by lots and lots and lots of people. So there it is. That's simple. Get as many people to see your show. Well, we all know it's not that simple. But don't worry, we're going to talk about lots and lots of different ways to get all those lots and lots of people to see your show here on Broadway Bullet and on theproducersperspective.com. I'm Ken Davenport, and you've been listening to The Producers Perspective the best of company.
0: Well, three shows are going up at the Midtown Children's Musical Theater Festival, including uh, with co-production partner that we've talked to before, Marcy Ellenshine from Little Fig Stages, as well as Bozo Moon and Producers Club in on putting together three shows. They are Sealed with a Kiss or Swack, The True Colors of Weedle, and Rapunzelella White, uh, i kind of here to talk about this rather, I, I'm guessing it's a rather ambitious thing putting up three things with additional writer and producer, June Rachelson-Aspa. How are the two of you doing?
9: Great, Great. thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having us.
0: Maybe introduce yourselves quickly so people can connect your name with your voice.
9: I'm Marcy
1: O'Shine from Little Fig Stage. And I'm June Rachelson-Aspa of Bozo Moon Productions.
0: All right, so um, tell us, what is this collaboration? What are the three shows here that are going up? Uh, this is a, a lot to take in, but uh, some great uh, children's entertainment here.
1: Um, well, what happened was, it was it was probably last summer when I spoke to Fred Tolia at the Producers Club, and he wanted to have children's entertainment in his theater, which is about a block away from Times Square. And I've done a done a lot of theater for kids, and I said, well, why don't we put something in Your theater. And we said, well, how about PC Jr.? And that's Mm. basically how this started. And there was a lot of delays and uh in that time Marcy had done productions of Swack and Weedle. Uh Swack was in could that was in uh that was Bedford Hills. Bedford Hills.
9: And then uh Weedle was our first, True Colors of Weedle was our first. A production with Little Fig Stage in an in the Players Theater off Broadway. So that was our introduction into, or inauguration into the whole off Broadway, bringing teenagers to perform to, to in perform. New York.
0: So where did this turn from? Uh, let's put on some children's entertainment in the producer theater to let's do three shows. I'm guessing that's a little bit more ambitious than a...
1: Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> that part was my partner's idea, Daniel Knighton, who's not here. And he said, why not do a festival? And I said, okay. And I went into Fred and I said, let's do a festival. And uh, Fred had come back from Albania, and that's, we sat down with him, and that's what we decided to do. And um, I had these shows. I mean, I've written book and lyric for the, th- for the three shows, and uh, there's different... Composers on the on the uh, pieces, and uh, so that's what we did. And then we got. So we said, "Well, who knows the shows?" And Marcy knows two out of the three shows, <laughs> and the third show Daniel and I wrote. So that's how that happened. We wrote with Ponzarella White, and uh, we said, "Okay, let's do it."
0: All <laughs> right now, before we continue, maybe we can hear one of the songs. You brought in a couple of the actors from the show to to perform a couple of the numbers live here. Do you wanna do you wanna set this? first one up at all
1: okay um the first one is the is the duet which is the frog the frog he's the frog who turned back into a prince and uh, that was Ryan Knowles and Vanessa Bellardini plays the witch who is now back to being a princess and they discover that they are they are destined to be together so they sing waiting for you together and that's at the end and it's basically about loving each other
0: Love. right right and, and who's the lovely musical director who's going to be playing them playing along
1: with them that's Kezia hersey
0: <laughs> all right so.
1: and yeah and she's been she's been working very hard with us and she's directing wolf musical directing all three shows
2: all right well let's take a listen I can see a lesson learned suddenly our tail has turned a passive crossed. Can't you see? Oh yes, I see, it's destiny This time around, a love so new For a second second chance, I've been given you I always thought things would come easy That all of my dreams would be served on a fine silver platter, nothing else mattered. All I wanted was the life I deserved. So I was to wish on the stars above, to send me someone who I could love. The journey was long till you came along. Now I know what I'm going to do, because all love is true. I was waiting. I imagined somebody so lovely with all of those fairytale charms. Now I can't help revealing all the love that I'm feeling. Let me bury myself in your arms. I used to wish on the stars above. To send me someone who I could love Now that you're here, there's nothing to fear Now I know what I'm gonna do Cause our love is true I was waiting for you I never knew how to look inside someone's heart There was so much I misunderstood But your heart has everything, it makes my heart sing I never dreamed that love could be this good I used to wish on the stars above To send me someone who I could love Now that you're here, everything's clear I'm glad that our search is through, cause our love is true, I was waiting for you, our love is true, I was waiting for you.
0: Great. So, how's the scheduling of this working? The three shows here. "Sealed with a Kiss" was the, the song was just from uh, that starts. I know July 9th. Do these shows overlap, or do they go sequentially? Yeah, they, or they're, I mean,
9: th- they're two weeks each, same cast. So when we're we have uh, when we open with um, SWAC on the ninth, yeah, when, yeah, um, we'll be rehearsing in the afternoons for the next show. So we have two weeks to rehearse, and then following that, then we'll rehearse for. Rapunzarella White while we're performing
1: True Colors of Weedle.
0: So what has drawn the two of you so much to children's theater and children's entertainment? Just a...
1: um, actually, I I started writing for kids um, when my first, when Jonathan, well, no, Jacob was born in 19, I guess it was 1980, God, he's going to be, he's going to be 22, so, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I was writing adult pop songs, and then I got this idea, oh, I want to write for kids, and one of the first things I wrote with with him in mind was a song called The Bibble Song, and he said, cause he said, Mommy, why don't you do a song that goes like, mm-hmm. and I did, and I had a composer at the time who's passed away, but that's Phil Goodbody, and he wrote Swack with me, and I said, come on, Phil, you're going you're gonna to write a show for kids with me, and then it just kind of came out, and I wanted to do it for the fact that I had children, and. I don't know just something struck me that it was something that made me feel really good
9: and it's 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 wonderful to introduce theater to young children in this case we have adult actors and we're doing it for a family children's audience um, and to see reactions of children um, when they're experiencing and they see a princess they really think it's a princess and and they see a frog and it's a really a talking frog, and, and, I, and I love um, seeing the reaction and you know, making such a positive first experience for these children. And then on the other end of it, I love, <clears throat> as a director working with teenagers in my, uh, in my own company, um, the nurturing and developing of these young talents and to see where they can go with it. And it's, it's just rewarding.
0: Like, as you mentioned, the, the, these are adult actors, you know, performing the, the shows for family, audience, and children. Um, and I think there's kind of two camps of children's theater, and people never know there's, You know, children's theater performed by children, and children's theater performed by adults. And with both of you having worked on both sides of the equation, what, what production-wise are the— do you think about different things? Is there a concern when there's adults playing it that for them to not look like they're talking down? Or, you know, on the appeal, I'm kind of curious the differences between—
9: Well, I, actually, mm-hmm. with both— just to really believe that you are this character Um, because when you're an adult and you're performing for children they know when you're insincere and they know when you're faking it and so as an adult actor and and I've done this myself as an actor you know you really have to believe that you are this character whether it's the most far-fetched thing or or a, a realistic character um, because children see right through you. And then for children to perform, you're telling them the same thing. Just believe um, that you're this character. It's a little harder for them to really become a, a character that, you know, is so unrealistic. Um, but uh, that's how they learn. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right. So I know we got Ryan coming back to perform another song from Sealed with a Kiss with... Uh, louise stewart and vanessa singing back up on this one um do you want to set this one up tell us what it is what it's about and the uh
1: well <clears throat> what's the story is basically him going off to find the witch because he's now kissed i think it was two princesses at this point at this point point. and yeah. he and every time he kisses a princess she turns into a frog and he's getting royally angry so that's the song about, you know, what's the story, what's going on, and I'm going to find that Grisella and make her pay. And he doesn't know, of course, that this is his destined, you know, his destined real princess. So.
9: And he has backup singers who are his frogettes. They're like little lily pads. Um, so that's yeah. where the female voices are coming from.
2: Okay. I can strangle Grisella Tear her apart Cause when I puck her up I break one more heart And two princess frogs Are down on my list Of the unfortunate ones Who've already been kissed Tell me what's the story What's going on I want a happy ending But everything is wrong Tell me what's the story What's it gonna be And I may. It's still a mystery to me. I find that hex maker, I look high and low through the forest and meadow, I that old crow never rest, sun up to sundown. return to snow white, wearing my crown, tell me what's the story, what's the tale, I want a happy ending, but I mustn't fail, tell me what's the story, what's it gonna be, a nightmare, romance, a romance. romance, it's still a mystery to me,
0: All right, so uh, tell us a little bit more about the details of how people uh, can get the tickets uh, and and check out Sealed with a Kiss, SWAK, True Colors of Weedle, Rapunzarella White, all that.
1: Well, there's a lot of ways. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They can go to theatermania.com slash kids Mm -hmm. and click on Midtown Midtown Children's. Children's Musical Theater Festival. They can go to the Producers Club website. They can go directly to Bozo, D, D, bozomoonshows.com. There's a direct link there. And they can go to littlefigstage.com. <laughs> and probably broadwaybullet.com <laughs> right, after today. Exactly. So they and then they, at, they can actually go directly to the theater a half hour before uh, with cash. And they can get tickets then, too. And the, the theater is on 44th between 8th and 9th, 358 West 44th Street.
0: And how much are the tickets for the shows?
1: It's uh, twenty-five for a single. Seniors and students are twenty, and then um, they can. We can do special group rates, so they can call.
9: Discounts and there's discounts. There's discounts on theater mania. On theater mania
1: as well. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, Marcy Ellen Elenshan, it's great to have you back again. And I urge oh, people to listen to our interview you. with you before, especially as you talked about some of your uh, and, experiences in and Atlantic can City. I, can I
9: just say <laughs> that in September, we're starting rehearsals on this new show with our teenagers called The Lost Legends of Camelot, written by Broadway poet's very own Michael Gilbo.
0: Ah, uh, you're making that official? I'm, right, that I'm is official
5: with his <laughs> collaborator,
9: <laughs> collaborator, Bryce Weiners. Um, and we're really excited to start work on your Great. show. And Michael's excited to write some new songs with you. Is our Michael? Yeah, yeah I'm Ficcicelli excited yeah, to collaborate or, on
0: some of the newer songs with him. Yes, uh, we're excited. It's a fun show. I'm glad you guys uh, enjoyed that. And again, so Marciel and, and June's
1: China. got a new show coming up too, right? Yeah, your yeah with Lady Show with Kezia called "Some Things Get Better with Age." So look for us in the.
0: Your future. All right. Generation OSPA. Okay. And again, the website, the best website, I think, is uh, bozomoonshows.com.
1: Because it'll uh, link everything right up.
0: And thanks so much for coming down and talking about it. Thanks, uh, you know, Ryan, Vanessa, and Louise for coming in and singing. Thanks to... Uh, Ah, too many names keep track of Kezia <laughs> for playing and uh, musical directing for your shows and have a great time with this uh, in, this is inaugural for the Children's Theater Festival this yeah. is yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: great best of luck and uh, let this be many years to come
9: thank you thank you, you. Okay. Thank you. Top of the trades.
0: Spike Lee, the director of such memorable films as Inside Man, the upcoming miracle at St. Anna, Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, and She's Gotta Have It will direct a film of the award-winning Broadway musical Passing Strange. The film of Passing Strange will be shot during two performances in front of a live audience on Saturday, July 19th at the Blasco Theater. Thereafter, the musical will be filmed two additional times without an audience. What's On Stage is reporting that big screen star Josh Hartnett will be making his stage debut in the UK in a new stage adaptation of Rain Man. The play will run from September 8th to December 20th at the Apollo Theatre. Hartnett will be playing the role of Charlie Babbitt to British actor Adam Godley's Raymond. The 2008 Broadway cast recording of Gypsy will be released on Tuesday, August 26th. The new Broadway cast recording of Gypsy boasts the talent of Tony and Olivier Award-winning star Patti LuPone, four-time Tony Award winner Boyd Gaines, and Tony Award winner Lauren Bonatti. All three won 2008 Tony Awards for their performances in the Celebrator revival. The CD is expected to be available for pre-order in July from Amazon.com and other online retailers. It's currently available for pre-order from Dewinters.
7: Curtain Call. Well,
0: that wraps up Volume 212 of Broadway Bullet. I have been crazy busy in the studio this past uh, several weeks, and uh, and i got a really good piece of business that's uh, coming together. Uh, I'll be letting you know as soon as it's all official, but uh, it's kept my mind a bit scattered, so I apologize. I know a couple of the interviews I wasn't quite up to snuff where I normally am. So uh, hopefully you'll forgive me and still uh, attend the shows anyway. In any case, uh, next episode, volume 213, we're going to have another return to Broadway Abridged as the players bring you Spring Awakening Abridged. So you'll want to check that out. Plus, we're going to have lots of other good stuff. Uh, Rumor has it, not confirmed, but we may have another Tony Award winner on the show next week. So, in all that wrapping it up, thanks for hopping on board. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and you've been riding the Broadway, bullet. It's just so
1: like, oh. the Broadway Bullet. Wow, this could really happen! We're starved,
2: so Shenmoldy should an audition come up? We are so ready and raring. So, Jake Krakowski said my name, and I'm in the can.
0: Actually, the barfait thing comes
5: from my whole life. People just vulture, boggler. So it didn't take
7: much, though. When he um, proposed, I said yes.
2: It's fun to know that those lines will stay in the show when other actors do it in the
1: future. The hairs went up on the back of my neck. It was a thrilling moment.
2: things with the audience and explore them a little bit.
0: So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to BroadwayBullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.